Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Welcome to another episode of Migration Conversations. On today's episode, we'll be talking about what it feels like to be a refugee claimant. We talked to a former refugee claimant named Skylar. Skylar, an American citizen and former member of the United States Army, came to Canada to claim refugee protection. Full disclosure, I was Skylar's lawyer in her bid for refugee protection. In this conversation, Consider what refugee claimants must do and perform to obtain protection. Welcome, Skylar. It's so nice to speak with you again and to hear that you are doing well. Thank you, and you as well. So I met you in the fall of 2007 when you first arrived in Canada. And while you were in Canada, you endured two refugee hearings, two judicial reviews of your refugee hearings. But before we get to that, I wonder if you can explain to listeners why you asked Canada for refugee protection. Can you tell me why you came to Canada and how you were able to do so? So uh, the reason I decided to come to Canada was because while I was in the US Army, I was discriminated against and harassed uh, by other soldiers just for being um, a lesbian. And at that time I wasn't even out. I was trying to stay in the shadows. Um, my then friend, Jeremy, uh, was the one who actually came to me because he was also having issues of his own. And he said, hey, there's a group in Canada that would help us. Um, they're called the War Resisters Support Campaign. And I've already contacted them. I think that we should go to Canada and meet them and stop dealing with what we're dealing with. And honestly, like, I didn't even think about it. I just immediately was like, yes, same night, we packed everything that we had into the back of his truck. And we just took off and drove. We didn't even stop because we were so scared. <laughs> That's an incredible story, Skylar. Um, you came with a friend across the border. Um, but let's back up a little bit. You were a member of the 
United States Army. And I think a lot of people, as through your experience here and in the United States, have asked you, why did you join the military? Can you speak a little bit about how that journey began? Well, it's it was kind of a combination of two things. Um, well, I guess maybe two or three, but I'll just narrow it down to two. Um, well, one of them was in my family and probably, of course, all across the U.S., people are pressured to join the military because it's the honorable thing to do. It's courageous, you know, fight for your country and all that jazz. And when I was uh, 17 is when my family started really pressuring me to do it because I was going to be graduating high school. and. Um, you know, they said, you, you don't want to be uh, working in uh, fast food restaurants all the time. This is a good, stable job. You know, just go do it. So because of that pressure from my family and with the whole in the United States, it's like, this is the honorable thing to do. Yes, go fight and die for your country. That's what you need to do. That's why I signed up. And when you signed up, did you know uh, what kind of work environment you would be entering in, what kind of culture, what kind of organization did you know as a lesbian, what kind of place it would be for you? Um, I didn't know that I was going to get what I walked into. I knew that it was shunned upon, you know, and to not be out. And I had other friends who were uh, LGBT who were in the military and they're like, yeah, we just don't say it out loud. We don't walk around with our partner and we hide it pretty well. So I thought maybe I would be able to do that as well. So you understood that um, to be in the military meant that you don't ask, don't tell. You were familiar with that policy in the U.S. military. Can you explain what that policy is and what that meant for you? So the don't ask, don't tell is basically you can't ask other service members their sexual orientation and you shouldn't tell yours either. Um, I did know about that. I didn't like, of course, I didn't think it would last forever. Um, and I was kind of hoping that, you know, I could hide it, be in the closet, they say, until things changed. Um, but, you know, I just didn't realize what kind of trap I was walking into. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that you did not feel safe being uh, an out lesbian in the US military at the time. Uh, can you tell me what led you to believe not only that your fellow colleagues would not have your back, but that they actually might harm you? Um, is this before I went to duty station or after? In any experience that you had at the military. Okay. Well, beforehand, you know, I didn't have any clue. I thought I would be able to hide it like my other LGBT friends. But once I got done with basic training and I was at my uh, active station, uh, that's when I started learning that it was going to be a lot more difficult to just stay in the closet because you know I was young and naive I didn't realize that all the soldiers hang out with each other every night if not every weekend they go to the same bars they're always on base together 
and you know they're all up in each other's business <laughs> and can you tell me you know what led you to believe that you were not safe in the military once i was at that duty station and started trying to be friends with the other service members uh that's when you know because they're in my business they found out of course and one of them uh another soldier was uh, a lesbian who had been my friend um she of course didn't say anything but there were other service members who found out i don't know if it was because of her or maybe she whispered something she wasn't supposed to or they just put two and two together by looking at me um that's when the harassment began and then you know it escalated through the time i was there um so that's when the harassment began and then the harassment slowly turned into physical altercations and threats and telling me you know you don't belong here you know those kind of things yeah you mentioned that you received threats um what were those threats what how did you receive these threats and what did they threaten um i don't remember the exact details of what uh any notes that were left behind said i just remember that they were threatening bodily harm to me yeah so these well, sound very disturbing that you were harassed, you were physically um, abused, it sounds like, and you were receiving threats of bodily harm. These are very serious things and that must have been very frightening for you. Yeah, definitely at the time it was because I was still 18, 19 years old, just came out of the world. <laughs> yeah, and that to be your first kind of you know, outside of school encounter um, in an organization that's meant to be professional and meant to train young folk, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, I wonder if you could talk about, um, you know, the fact that the military is a hierarchical structure and you had superiors, you had people keeping everyone in line. Did you ever go to your superiors about these incidents and did you think your superiors could help you? So I do remember this very clearly because um, I was a mechanic and and not just mechanics, but any service member. They do have that hierarchy where you can't just walk into your first sergeant's office and say, hey, this is going on. You have to go to your uh, your initial sergeant first and then there's platoon sergeant there's several steps before you even get to first sergeant. And so you have to ask your direct superior for permission to go over their head. And I remember asking my sergeant, you know, telling him what was going on and saying, hey, I really need to talk to the first sergeant about this. And he just brushed me off and said, you'll be fine. So basically he dismissed um, what you had said and um, the incidents that had happened and basically told yeah. you to forget about it. Yeah, and I think I recall him saying, oh, they're just joking or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
Did you think that you could just brush it off? Did you think about talking to someone else that was also a superior? I mean, because of that hierarchy, if I had gone to another superior, then they would have done some sort of punishment to me for not following the chain of command. Mm -hmm. So you felt like they basically were not going to um, treat your complaint or um, your, the incidents of harassment or abuse seriously. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, did you think that anyone outside of the military could help you? Um, I, at that time, at that age, I didn't know of anything else except for when Jeremy came to me and brought up the War Resistors Support Campaign. And because I felt I had already tried to go through my chain of command, I felt like this was my only other way. Yeah, like if you had stayed, what do you think would have transpired? Honestly, if I had stayed during that time, um, I, I really did fear for my life. I thought they were going to kill me. Yeah, I mean, at that time, um, you, the U.S. military was active in Afghanistan and Iraq, so there was a real possibility that you would have been deployed to mm-hmm. a war zone with people that had harassed, abused, and threatened you. I think that's a very frightening prospect. Yeah, I do remember that being their plan. Like, they needed bodies in Afghanistan, so they weren't going to let anyone go. And did you think that you could leave the military? Um, No, there's only certain ways to get discharged from the military without completing your full term. And I did not qualify for any of those. Mm -hmm. So you felt like you had no way out, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry that you're having to rehash this unpleasant part of your life. (laughs) That's okay. It is important to talk about. Yeah, it's important. Also, I think it's very remarkable that you receive the support and assistance of, as you said, uh, the War Resisters Canada. It's a grassroots organization um, that's built up of volunteers and activists. When you arrived in Canada, you received this immense amount of support from them. Can you tell me who they were and what, you know, those relationships you built through that community has meant to you? Well, I believe the very first person I met was Joel Harden, um, and he was so welcoming. He's a positive, you know, like just a very warm uh, aura type of person. And he introduced me to, I believe, both Ariel Troster and Marna Nightingale. And Marna is the woman uh, who brought me into her family gave me and Jeremy a place to stay. Ariel Troster wrote the first article about me, which I still have, by the way, which is really cool. Um, And then there are many others in the War Resisters campaign whose names I can't currently remember, but that doesn't mean that they weren't also very important. 
Yeah. So it sounded like you had a whole community of people that helped you, which is an amazing, I think it's a important story to tell people that um, there's a huge community of support for refugees in Canada and that often um, people don't realize how much work it is to support persons going through this kind of system. So you came to Canada and you submitted your claim in Canada. Um, and at your first hearing before the Immigration Refugee Board, or what is colloquially known as the IRB, you were given an opportunity to present your claim, your story. Can you tell me what it felt like? What it was, if you remember, what, what do you remember? You know, how did the board member in the hearing receive you, react to your story? So I don't remember a whole lot from that first uh, IRB hearing, except, you know, meeting up with you beforehand and you were helping me go over things like, you know, don't forget this, make sure to to disclose this and, and let them know this or that. Um, but the only other thing I remember, I don't remember any of the questions that that board member asked me. I just remember being in that room with the one person. And, you know, it was very anxiety inducing because <laughs> it's like one-on-one, -on -one, they're staring you down and you're, I'm over here telling them my entire life story and some of it, you know, very, sad and they're just sitting there deadpan with no emotion on their face <laughs> it's very weird <laughs> yeah that's great that you remember that because i think a lot of people don't get a chance to view a refugee hearing right they don't know what it feels like and um many of the people that present their stories don't necessarily speak english or french the official mm -hmm. languages of canada and you didn't need a translator and you could understand everything that was going on around you. Um, yeah. Other than the anxiety and, you know, um, the stress under which you were in, in that hearing, did you feel anything else? Did you experience or remember any other sensation while you were there? Not during the hearing, but definitely after the time after waiting for the the verdict to come back and and that took a long time so it was like i am trying to build a life and live there in canada but also in the back of my head it's like i could be forced to leave at any moment so it's you know that feeling where you don't have um a secure plan for your future that's that's something that really messes with you yeah i think that's really important to point out that a lot of people don't realize how much of your life is at stake with one decision and how much your life was in limbo during that period of time. Yeah, I just remember you being very positive and very, <laughs> um, I would say very humble and, and positive. And yeah, it was humbling to see how much courage you had to endure something um, like that for, for so long. Well, to be honest, that was on the outside. You know, I tried to put on a face, but, you know, on the inside, I was always pretty scared that that was going to come back and they say, hey, you got to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And indeed, you did get that decision where 
the IRB after the first hearing said that you were not a refugee and uh, the decision was rejected. We judicially reviewed it at the federal court. Um, and I remember very clearly walking into the building with you. Do you remember how you felt when you received that decision? You know, when you heard that you were rejected as your application was rejected for refugee protection? I mean, it was very devastating. Um, at first I was, you know, devastated and distraught, but once you told me we can always appeal this, you know, don't freak out. I just learned to trust you. And even when we were waiting on the, the second uh, IRB decision later on, I thought back to the time when we had to go through the first denial and you telling me, don't stress, we'll appeal it. <laughs> so try yeah. to stay positive. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> um, but we did end up going to the federal court. Um, do you remember going to the federal court, how that was a little bit different? And what did you think of that process? And do you, do you remember the emotions I you honestly, were going through? I don't remember the federal court. I don't. <laughs> Shortly after uh, the federal court heard your decision, heard your case, they, um, granted your judicial review. And so your case went back to the IRB to have a second hearing. But do you remember that the media uh, caught wind of this? <laughs> and um, there was a lot of interest in your story. Uh, mm -hmm. How did it feel like to suddenly become a public figure to talk about something so intimate in your life? Um, you know, some intimate details of your life? Like, how did it feel like to engage with the media? Did you you seemed comfortable with it at the time, but I just wanted to canvas what you experienced. Um, for me personally, I feel like I'm more than comfortable being a public figure, but having to talk about my personal life to that depth was a little off-putting. Um, but I had to keep in mind that you know, you have to talk about every detail because if you leave something out, then that could hurt your claim. Yeah, what did you think um, the role of talking to the media would do for your case? Like, how did that change when your story became public? Well, both Marna and I were kind of hoping that the media attention would uh, gain like public favor on my side. Now looking back at it, I don't think it was going to affect the outcome. But if more people were on my side and favored my story, then maybe the pushback could have affected it. But I, I don't know. It's an incomplete story. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of um, people go to the media when they feel like it can add some pressure to their uh, to advocate to directly to decision makers in, you know, parliament or legislatures or other decision makers. Um, so you're certainly not alone in thinking that that strategy could have impacted your life at the time. But yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
so the federal court did find that there were review, reviewable errors in the first IRB decision, and you were given another chance to present your story to a different board member at the IRB again. By then, a substantial amount of time passed, and the second hearing was very different from the first. Uh, do you remember how different they were, or what was the difference? Honestly, on that second one, I don't remember the full meeting again. Um, I just, I always can remember and recollect the the feelings that I had and not per se the details. So the feelings that I had were a little bit different from the first one where I was in limbo, I was anxious. I mean, of course, on the second one, I was still anxious, stressed out, you know, scared, but a lot of, like you said, a lot of time had gone by and I felt a little bit more secure that I would have a chance to stay just because I'd been here for so long. Yeah. Do you remember that uh, the hearing room was much fuller? There were other people there um, in this iteration of the hearing ministers the ministers sent a representative their legal counsel to argue against your case uh, they had proffered expert affidavits um, to counter our expert uh, evidence and i would say it was pretty adversarial compared to the first hearing the first hearing was sent, felt like a conversation more even though it might not have been a, a very friendly conversation, but the second <laughs> hearing, I felt like it was very adversarial. There was a lot of people in the room. And they were all coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember some of the questions that the board member asked you or some of the comments that were made during the hearing? I think one thing that did kind of throw me off while we were in this uh, IRB hearing was that uh, one of the individuals asked me to explain what carpet muncher meant. And that was very uncomfortable to have to explain like sex acts of lesbians to a grown person who should know that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a very uh, uncomfortable situation to have to be in when you are basically advocating for legal status in Canada. <laughs> so a very odd question, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I also I mean, remember because of that experience and, and living with Marna. Now I'm much more open about talking about sex lives. So thanks <laughs> for that, IRB. <laughs> Uh, so no question is beyond uh, beyond one's expectation, I guess you could say, at the IRB, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember it being quite adversarial. Um, I think it was the first and only time in such an adversarial setting that I had to pull out rules of evidence and... Um, to, you know, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it was very 
I, I think it was um, a very, uh, I would say aggressive hearing um, and one that I don't think I've ever been in since. Like it, in, in my career, that was a very, the second board hearing was very aggressive and I, it will take me a long time to forget that. Um, but I was going to ask you if you'd ever had that before or after, but no. And at the time I didn't want to, you know, of course, uh, worry you or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we walked into the room and realized that not only was there a refugee protection officer, but there was a minister's council, I knew that we were going to have a fight. And I mean, I think that's the only time I had a four day refugee hearing too. I remember most re- refugee hearings last two to four hours, um, but this hearing lasted four days. Um, and we had a lot of issues on the table in terms of evidentiary rules about which evidence is admissible, um, which experts should be allowed to submit evidence. And um, I, I remember having to pull out my phone and ask for permission from an expert to make sure that we were able to use um, evidence at the time and that we were successful in keeping one piece of expert evidence out on the same basis that they were arguing. So it was very interesting from a legal perspective, but I can't imagine what it must have felt like for you to watch all of this going on. See, I didn't know about that at the time that you were, you know, fighting on the fly. (laughs) Yeah. Now that I know that, if I had known that at the time, I probably would have been more stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. We were both hiding our true feelings at the time then. Yeah, it was a very stressful (laughs) hearing. I have to say, you know, a lot of people had warned me when you're a lawyer, um, you know, expect the unexpected and be prepared for you know, the unknown. And that hearing really brought a lot of unexpected things. And I felt like we, we dealt with it though, and we did the best we could. So, um, you were amazing, by the way, I had no idea that it was a struggle for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it was a memorable hearing. I'll say that. Um, unfortunately, despite all of our efforts, all the, you know, uh, work that you did and sharing your story and, the work we did in presenting your case, um, yeah, you were rejected a second time. Um, how did it feel to get that second rejection? You know, the thing that I could say that would closely match it is if someone not once but twice drove a dagger into your heart. <laughs> like it hurt real bad. <laughs> Yeah, I was very disappointed too, but in some ways the second time around, I wasn't as surprised because of the fight they put up. I just mm-hmm. remember thinking um, in both hearings that they had said, you know, made off the hand comments. How could a refugee come from the United States? And it's really interesting now to watch what's going on in Trump's America and how there are a lot of people who want to come to Canada to claim refugee protection. So it's not far-fetched to think that um, the United States may not be a safe place for all kinds of people, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like it hasn't been a safe place since 2016. Um, So we did judicially review your second IRB decision to the federal court. By this time, five years had passed since you had arrived in Canada. That is a significant amount of time. You had to some extent made Canada your home. Were you losing hope by that time? 
Um, I, I think I was, I was losing some hope that I would be able to stay there. I, you know, was building a life at that time. I believe I was engaged to someone. Um, and in the end that relationship didn't work out, but I was trying to build my future while still having to live life in limbo. And like I said earlier, you know, having to do that without having a clear, secure future in your mindset, it, it makes it very difficult to make plans. Yeah, that's very understandable. Um, the federal court dismissed your judicial review the second time around. Um, at the end of the day, what are your impressions of Canada's refugee determination system, you know, having experienced it firsthand? Well, I'm hoping that it's changed or improved now in 2020. But when I was going through it, it definitely seemed like applying for refugee status and coming from the United States, they just weren't going to have it either way, no matter what your situation was. So do you think it was because you had come from the United States that colored your ability to um, make a refugee claim? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, a lot of listeners might not understand what your claim was about. Um, I encourage people to read the decisions, especially the ones, the first federal court decision. There's some really interesting findings made by um, the federal court in that first decision about how to do a refugee claim and what kinds of things to consider. And I think, you know, to some extent, you're right, that it's really hard for people to visualize how could it be that someone needs protection from the United States um, without understanding fully what it means to be a member of the US military, what kind of judicial system people are subject to in the military. Um, yeah, did, did you feel like you gained a greater understanding of the military, refugee law, but also what kinds of challenges and opportunities people have to, to gain safety in these kinds of situations? Well, if, I definitely wouldn't recommend join, joining the military to anyone that I know in the US. <laughs> That's uh, kind of out the window. Um, and then if you are from the US and you're trying to seek refugee in Canada, like you just have to make sure to have all your ducks in a row. You have to have proof. I know sometimes it's not always possible to have proof, but be ready for a fight, tooth and nail. You have to go in swinging. Yeah, I think it was a very tumultuous uh, experience for sure for a lot of us that do this work, but also especially for people like you who experience it firsthand. Do you, do you have any final words of recommendation if the IRB was listening one day, you know, how they could make the process a little bit better for people going through it? I would probably urge them to not be so adversarial, as you said. Um, one thing that I've learned in my life is you should trust someone until they give you a reason not to. And I feel like if they had at least given what I said, like a grain of salt, a thought, hey, maybe she's telling the truth instead of 
trying to combat me and and say that oh no it's not true then it might have been a better outcome yeah i think that's very poignant of you to point out that ultimately what happened was that they just didn't believe you right and that must have been very jarring given what you knew and what you experienced yeah yeah and i think um if you look at the number of cases that come out of the IRB, most of them are founded on whether they believe someone or not. Like the ultimate decision rests on whether they believe that person or not. So you're certainly not the first or the last refugee claimant that they did not believe, right? Right. And and to add to that, I would say, you know, someone doesn't run away in the middle of the night with all of their belongings if they're not scared for their life. Yeah, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard for people to understand. I'm not sure why, but people don't do that on a whim without reason, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you for sharing your experience and your feelings about it. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.